Welcome to She Is Your Neighbor, a show where we discuss the realities and complexities of domestic violence. This podcast is brought to you by Women's Crisis Services of Waterloo Region, a charitable organization in Ontario, Canada. I'm your host, Jenna Main. Join me as we talk to different people each week to learn how domestic violence impacts people from all walks of life. She is your neighbor, and we all have a role to play in ending domestic violence. This week's episode is called Seeking Support, Challenges That Trans Youth Face with Kieran Doobie. Kieran is a children's services worker at Family and Children's Services in Guelph. He has worked in the field of social work for over 30 years. He's an advocate for anti-racism and the LGBTQ2S plus community. He's dedicated much of his career working to change policies within his organization and to raise awareness of the systematic oppression that these clients face. Kieran is also a transgender man himself. In this episode, he speaks about the challenges that transgender youth experience, especially when it comes to seeking support for domestic violence. He also shares a bit about his own experience as a trans man and why he thinks it's so important for young people to have positive role models to look up to who are part of the LGBTQ2S community. Kieran is such an inspiration. I'm so glad that he came on the show to talk about this very, very important topic. One thing I want to note before we get started is that this episode was recorded in early summer of 2020 during the first wave of the COVID-19 pandemic in Ontario. So thanks again for joining me here today. I'm really excited to have Happy you here. To be here. Yeah. Um, so can you start by telling me your name and telling me a bit about yourself? Sure. Uh, my name is Kieran Doobie, and I'm 55 years old. I work for Family and Children's Services in Guelph. I've worked there for over 20 years, and I'm a children's services worker. So that role means I work with. Uh, youth and children who are in the foster care system or living independently. Okay, great. Mm -hmm. Thank you. So today we're going to be talking a bit about domestic violence and how it impacts the LGBTQ2S plus community and specifically how it impacts transgender and non-binary youth. So during COVID-19, we know that lockdowns have been accompanied by increased rates of domestic violence. We've seen it all around the world and we've seen it here locally too. Um, And this can be especially relevant for LGBTQ2S people uh, because domestic violence and family violence are common forms of violence that they experience. So we're going to talk a bit about that today. And as we mentioned, to talk a little more specifically about transgender and non-binary youth. So I wanted to just start by getting your thoughts on this. Um, I'm wondering if this is something you've seen through your work um, and if you could share a little bit about this. Yes, specifically with COVID-19, it's been a really challenging time, especially for the LGBTQS plus population, because like you've said, home is not a safe place uh, during this time. And that's when people have been made to stay home, made to quarantine. And a lot of the youth that I work with in particular are actually usually kicked out of the home so uh, they don't have a safe place to go so they end up on the streets and you'll see like there's a 
probably a larger homeless population of LGBTQ as plus youth uh, than other populations. So in those situations um, with COVID, they're already marginalized. They don't have the services that necessarily, or they wouldn't seek services necessarily uh, based on the fact that they've been discriminated against. So they may not think to, you know, access uh, domestic violence shelter because that just might not come to their forefront of their mind thinking that well I don't fit here this specifically with transgender youth or non-binary youth they may say well where do I fit so and their alternative is they stay on the streets um, recently in Guelph where I work we've had um, a po uh, we've partnered with Wyndham House and uh, CMHA and we've been able to um, secure a hotel that's been empty because of COVID oh, great. and they're um, housing the homeless population of Guelph at this hotel and many of the youth I work with are there and they are able to get shelter and food uh, but it's also difficult for them to socially isolate because that's not their lifestyle so they're mixing and, and uh, you know potentially exposing themselves to the virus yeah yeah. And I'm sure it would be difficult in that situation to get the support they need too. Um, you know, everything's chaotic for everyone right now, but if you're living in a hotel and you don't have your support system, that would probably be even more challenging. That's right. And and I think, well, luckily they do have staff at the hotel. Wyndham House staff are there like 24-7, which is great for, for the youth. Um, but for instance, like for example, myself, I've been out to see a few kids there over the uh, course of the... Uh, pandemic but we're not supposed to be seeing people face to face it's right. been like our mandate that we're to work at home have has you know as little contact as possible face to face so with that high-risk population those are the youth that we will be reaching out to so we have gone up I have gone to the hotel have seen them um, but it is a difficult time for them definitely I'm also uh, wondering if you could kind of share a bit why this is this conversation is important to you personally. Why you think this is something we need to talk about? Uh, for me personally, well, my main focus is going to always be the youth I work with, and um, it really, I mean, it's in the last three years since we brought Visa kids in, and I'm seeing like the numbers of trans kids like rising. It's just I feel like it's so important that uh, they're acknowledged, they're counted, and that we actually have. Um, proper and good safe services for these young people so we can change the trajectory of their lives so they don't end up um, committing suicide because like there's a high high risk of kids that are trans that kill themselves um, so we don't want that we want to change that we want um, to provide services that make make people feel worthy and acknowledged and accepted so that number one is my main focus and number two um, I am trans so it's important to me uh, I came out as trans at well I, I think I just kind of started my transition in my early 40s but didn't uh, change my name um, till I was 51 so um, for me personally uh, this is very big and it's very personal and it's important um, and I want to be a role model that's positive I don't I want to want it to be someone in the community that uh, people can look up to and say hey there's somebody that's you know being a social worker or um, is helping others and has a productive life and um, so have a positive role model because um, I, I think there's just not there's not that out there for me there was not that I didn't I mean 
growing up, I didn't know what it meant to um, be trans. I didn't know, have a name for that. For me, it was, um, I just always felt like I was a boy. I was, I was, I was um, assigned female at birth, but I was very confused because I would tell my parents that I was a boy and they were like, no, you're not. And I'm like, yeah, I, I really feel that that's what I am, right? Yeah. So, I mean, I grew up that way. Um, and it didn't, it wasn't until both my parents had passed away that I actually felt that, you know, life is short and I needed to actually, you know, be true to who I really am. So that's when I decided to um, transition, like fully transition. Um, I have two daughters uh, who I gave birth to and uh, they are very, very supportive of me and my life. And um, uh, my family's been supportive. My workplace has been supportive. My peers have been supportive, colleagues. So I've been so lucky and I can't say that's the story for everyone. Um, so if there's anything I can do and like, you know, being, being an ambassador for your program, I, I want to be that good neighbor. I want to be um, partnering with your organization as a, as a worker at another social organization so that we together can make change so that um, maybe people that are younger can have like a, just a more authentic life earlier than their 50s. Yeah. Oh, it's so true. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. And I, I think it's so important, like you say, having a role model and having role models, plural, because uh, there's there's not necess that's not necessarily something that people see because of the way media and movies portrays mm -hmm. trans people. So I think it is so important for young kids to have good role models. And, and I'm really grateful you are coming on here and talking with us today because I, I think it's so important and to hear your story and to hear about your work. I, I think that's going to be really inspiring for a lot of people. It's inspiring for me. Oh, that's so. good. I hope so. I, oh, hope, yeah. I hope it does inspire. And um, I mean, the, the main thing is I think people need to have an openness and, uh, you know, People, trans people need to be treated just like everybody else and the doors need to be open for them. They need to be able to get have safety. They need to be, have all the things that everyone else has. You know, food, shelter, housing, safety. Like, those are the basics, yeah. you know, the basic needs in life and uh, everyone deserves that. Yeah, I'm sure. And could you talk a little bit more about the family violence and the domestic violence you've seen? Because I know a lot of you mentioned a lot of these youth will end up homeless, but a lot of the time this is due to family violence or domestic violence, right? Absolutely, yes. And that, and so just, it's just been in the last three, maybe three or four years that um, the legislation has changed that we will actually, the age of protection has increased from 16 to 18. So before that, those youth fell through the cracks. Those youth were not counted. They were not able to get access to um, services from Family and Children's Services so those kids would end up homeless and since then we've seen like a like a surge i would in it's called voluntary uh, youth service agreements where kids from 16 to 18 they can work with us voluntarily and we're seeing a lot of lgbt trans kids come through that in the past would have just been rejected from their family home and potentially f had you know physical abuse emotional abuse in the home uh, or kicked out, so you know, rejected, and then had nowhere to go. So now we are able to service those youth, and uh, they are coming in to work with us voluntarily. So That's great. That is great. Um, but I mean, I in our population, of, of say we have ten visa youth, I have four of those that are that are non-binary, um, transgender identified okay. youth. 
I've talked to Kitchener, uh, where your shelter is located, and they also have about six transgender uh, or non-binary youth on their records. So, okay. um, and another part of the, the problem has been over the past is that we haven't collected proper data. Mm -hmm. So it's only been, I think, in the last four years we've been doing identity-based data collection. So we're asking the questions about their um, sexual orientation, how they identify, what their gender is, um, their race, and before we weren't collecting that. So we wouldn't have known uh, what our populations are. If you're, not, if you're not collecting data, then you don't know who you're servicing. Right? Yeah. So um, I think that you know, the numbers could be greater than we're even knowing. Um, and I think as we get better at data collection, we will see more uh, LGBTQ S plus uh, youth that will be asking for service. Yeah, that and, makes and sense. And seeking shelter and seeking safety. So, I mean, sometimes they'll come to us to seek safety and um, we can't, we don't have, we don't have places to place them. We have no foster homes for usually kids 16 to 18. So we are, we are partnering with your organization, organization in Guelph, Wyndham House, who also uh, serves homeless youth, to get them safe shelter because they are escaping uh, family violence. Yeah, and like you said, these youth are falling through the cracks, especially that 16 to 18 range. Um, I know that's something that we struggle with here too and something we're constantly working on is how can we fill those gaps and like you said, collecting the data is a big part of it. Because if you don't know who you're serving, how can you serve them better, right? That's right. Um, and yeah, so for us at Women's Crisis Services, we serve women age 16 plus with or without children. They can come stay in our shelters. Um, but yeah, it's, it's difficult when it comes to transgender youth uh, or non-binary youth who are in this age range because do they, do they fit the criteria? How can we make sure that they do fit and they're getting the shelter and the support that they need? Um, especially when these groups are even more vulnerable like we just talked about, right? Right. And so, for example, the barrier they may face is the fact that uh, women's crisis services, they, women is the title. So if you're non-binary and uh, you don't look particularly uh, female, um, what, is your, what, what kind of discrimination potentially are you going to face when you come to the door? Or what if you're a trans man, um, but your name is still Susan? So you still have your, your female name. Uh, so do you meet the criteria? Or like it's it, or if you, for example, if you're a trans woman and on your birth certificate it's you're gonna check ID when the people come here, it says you know Fred, you're gonna go. You're, you're gonna have questions, or you're, or they're or they're gonna feel that you may have questions, or you may they may not feel that it's safe. Oh yeah, and to access the service. Yeah, and like you said, questions before they even show up at the door, right? Just right. questions going through your own mind when you're researching it, thinking, do I fit here? Right. Can I even call the number? Will they accept me? That's a huge barrier to even asking for help. And then once you ask for help, what if you're met with more questions and more challenges? Right, and, and potentially, like, where do you fit if you come to a women's shelter? Um, you know, women, I don't know about this shelter, but I know in shelter in Guelph, sometimes women have to share a room. So, you know, how's that going to work out for someone that may be trans-identified? Mm -hmm. Will they feel comfortable sharing a room with another woman? Would, you, or would that woman feel comfortable sharing a room with a trans person? And would, could there be potential issues, be, you know, arise because of that? So there's all of that stuff as well that comes, that, you know, forms the barrier. 
and like you said, even with the COVID, like people that are trans may not, um, may not, you know, want to, like they may not even think that was, that's an option. Like, you know, am I able to like leave my home to, to access a shelter? Are they taking clients? Like they would have to do that research, right? So I don't know whether they would, you know, if, if it's just COVID specifically, but, um, you know, in general, is, is that a barrier? Right. And not to mention these people are in crisis. So you're not even thinking straight. Right. The right. trauma you've experienced, yes. it's all these barriers and then trying to do it with your head on straight right. and figure out where to go and where to turn. That's a lot. It is a lot, yeah. And, you know, I think in the sector in general, there's a lot of work that needs to be done. And I know here at, organi at our organization, there's work that needs to be done and, and we want to do the work. Um, for us, I know a first step is just thinking about what are our policies, what, right. you know, let's start by looking at the policies. Is this, is this friendly towards everyone who needs our shelter? Who needs our shelter? And is it worded correctly? Absolutely. Because yeah. if it starts there, um, you know, then it, it, it triples down a little bit. So if you have staff members on the front line, they're going to refer back to the policy. Uh, and if that policy isn't isn't right and it's not accepting everyone who needs shelter, well then then it's a lost cause, right? Right, right. And then you have to make sure that your that your staff members are all on board. Um, and I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm I'm certain they would be here um, around transphobia, homophobia, that sort of thing. I think that um, you would want all your staff to be you know adhering to these policies and not like calling you on the end of the crisis line and they're like yes come in and then someone else are like no no you don't fit our mandate everybody needs to be on board with that right yeah so, exactly and who you meet at the front door especially when you're in crisis uh it's it's like so important right and how you're how you're how you're met um how that experience is going to go for you oh yeah you want to be welcomed you don't you know it's got to be friendly welcoming experience from the beginning or else right. after going through all those barriers just to get here if it's not a good experience I could imagine someone is likely to just turn back that's right why bother and then also you may face discrimination from other residents because your staff might be on board but uh, other residents of the shelter may not right they may not be accepting of trans people or they may like be discriminatory so they may face that yet another barrier to feeling safe in the service they access Another issue that I want to mention is that a lot of um, trans youth end up being uh, involved in sex work uh, because they can't find jobs. This, they're like discriminated against by employers. They're discriminated against, um, they don't always fit the bill for ODSP or Ontario Works. So uh, financially, you know, they may turn to sex work. And when you come to a shelter that has rules and guidelines around when you need to check in, you know, what you need to be doing, um, and in think of COVID, for example, that would, if you're in sex work, you're not socially distancing, you're, you're, so you're not technically really safe to come into shelter no. with policies around COVID. But in general, policies around like the hours of t day that you need to be in in shelter. So again, there's another reason why they may not seek shelter. Yeah, uh, that's a huge shelter. barrier. Yeah, and yeah, like you say. They may be drawn to sex work because it's their only option at the time. Uh, and then you also think about if they're used to having relationships that are unhealthy, they're used to being surrounded by family violence or domestic violence, it's maybe not that surprising that this 
might be a draw to them or or just simply their only option at all right right and and unfortunately i mean we don't have a lot of stats and we've looked through some research papers and um what we can get on canadian stats there are a few papers from toronto like where a very small sample of trans people will be like say 33 people at one i read um you know 33 people were in the sample that's not large for a city of Tor like toronto mm -hmm. um, but a lot of them are involved in sex work because that's um, the only job they can get or they're involved in the uh, LGBT community as in say like doing drag or things like that um, for an employment now with COVID and all those bars and things are closed down there's no money coming in for them so they become then you get into the cycle of homelessness mm -hmm. and uh, or you know depending on a, an abuse abusive partner for example for shelter like it's like I'm either gonna be with you even though you're abusive or I'll be on the streets so they may tolerate more more intimate violence than um, they should or, or, or would want to, but it's financial, right? Yeah. Or, or to have a roof over your head. Um, and unfortunately, I mean, I don't, I don't know that I could say for a fact that, you know, LGBT people, you know, end up having, you know, any more poor intimate relationships than other people. But I do know that, you know, when you've come from a place where you've been rejected, um, dating is not always easy for trans people uh, to find someone that will actually accept you and want to be with you. I mean, for who you are, sometimes it's uh, people get involved with trans people as a fetish and then the relationships turn violent. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, that's pretty common. Okay. I, I've, I've read that, um, uh, you know, then they're, then where do they go, right? And, yeah. and that's why it's so important that um, places like your shelter have great policies that have safe places for trans people to get out of those relationships and get services to set them up in a community uh, so they can have a you know a positive future oh yeah and it's it's just it's so much to consider it's it almost seems uh, very daunting as we talk about it. Um, I'm even feeling a bit heavy thinking, <laughs> oh man, how are we gonna do all this yeah um, but I think you know, small steps in the right direction, looking at those policies, even having these conversations is a good step in the right direction. Absolutely. Because um, it is, it's a big problem and, and you do need to think about all these different areas. Um, but the finances are a big one too, like you said. What do these people do for work? Is it going to meet the shelter guidelines or where they're staying? It's, it's, it's just huge, so. I, exactly, yeah. and. And then when, when it comes to like having to leave shelter, where do you find housing? I mean, that's why it's so important to have partnerships with other organizations in your community that help people find housing. So those agencies also need to be on board mm -hmm. with you know identifying the issues that trans people face for shelter and housing. Uh, like, uh, you know, some people won't rent to a trans person. They look different, they don't, you know. So when you go to rent a place, and you go to the door and say, hey, I'm so-and-so, and they see your appearance, you may just automatically never get a call back on that apartment, yeah. right? So there's things like that that people face that uh, you know, a lot of people take for granted, that they don't have that um, le you know, one more level or layer of, of barrier to cross to get you know, what you need to be safe. Oh yeah, and I don't think that's a very obvious barrier. It's not something that people think about all the time, right? right. Like I know I've talked to women uh, here who stayed in our shelters and, and that was a big barrier for them as a single woman with multiple children. A landlord may be more hesitant to rent to them because, you know, do you, I know you have the funds coming in every month. Are your, are your kids going to be yelling and screaming and it's just you and they have all these thoughts going through their mind and that's just 
with women, imagine being transgender or non-binary, it's even more barriers, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So I can only imagine what a challenge that would be. Yeah, and so a lots of times that's why people just decide they're not gonna they're not gonna look for service, right? They're just sometimes they just decide that's just too too difficult, and to face more of that rejection or discrimination. Um, racialized uh, trans people even face more discrimination. There's even a higher percentage of Black trans people, um, particularly women, that face uh, the discrimination and, uh, and domestic violence and partner violence and violence if they're doing sex work. Yeah. So then you have that as another layer. Oh yeah, they, it just keeps layering and compounding yes. and you can just see how, how would someone know where to turn or what to do, right? Right. So, I mean, I think we've been kind of talking about, you know, what are the barriers and how do we start approaching them, but I'm wondering, do you have any thoughts on what are some beginning steps people can take and organizations can take to kind of move in the right direction? Oh, for sure. Like, I know that at my organization we've done, um, we've had workshops with um, okay to be me uh, here in, in, in Kitchener. They've mm -hmm. come to our agency and done workshops on um, trans youth and how to provide service and um, uh, I mean, I, I work on a great team of children's services workers, I'll plug them here, but uh, everybody's very open and very accepting and very willing to work with trans kids. Um, so they would not face those barriers as they came in our door uh, by most staff, our staff mm -hmm. in particular. Like now I can't say that like, like throughout the whole organization, but I would hope so. I think we're working towards that. Um, I know a lot of times you'll see a pride flag on um, a door. I, I yeah. noticed that when I came in here. Um, that's a sign right there that there's there's a welcoming, there's a, a willingness. So I think that's like a very small step. Yeah. Um, but we have to be careful that's just not a window dressing. We mm -hmm. got to be careful that that is not just something that we're going to slap up there and think we've covered it, right? That's yeah. why, like you said, it, you have to really look at your policies and really, I think that's where things are going to change. You know, you know, historically women's shelters have been for cisgendered women mm -hmm. started by the feminist movement right started by you know women that wanted to help other women and didn't look at trans women as being women mm -hmm. so I think um, there's that means you're just gonna have to start you know chipping away at some of the history of how women's shelters became what they are um, and now that we're I think in we're becoming more aware of trans people and their issues just as that awareness raises, we just need to keep doing more work around changing policies, uh, educating, um, more exposure. Like a lot of people may not have been exposed to a trans person before. And what we do see in the media is often very negative. Mm -hmm. um, actually just been recently watching a Netflix documentary called, uh, I think it's called Disclosure. Okay. And Laverne Cox is like the oh, star yes. of the uh, of the show, but it it was really eye opening for me. I actually had to shut it off because it was really difficult to watch. But um, you know, historically, there's always been trans people portrayed in the media or in film, but a lot of time they've been made to seem crazy, or they've been made to be the the psycho killer or mm -hmm. the person that gets murdered on the crime show, and then they're made to look you know freaky and and uh, different. And I think we need to change those stereotypes we need to challenge those stereotypes we need to realize that that is not the case and um, you know I think the more like we do stuff like this to what we're doing today to raise awareness and that we partner you, you know you partner with family children services because our kids need shelter that we can't necessarily provide we can give them service but we may not have shelter they still need it to escape their violence 
um, and we partner together and then we work with other agencies I think that's how we're gonna have to do a community wraparound approach to just to, you know ensuring that trans people do have safety yeah I think so too I think that's the only way that it's going to work mm -hmm. and I think I think the training piece that you mentioned earlier that's a huge piece of it because um, everyone at the organization needs to be on the same page and we need to hear from the experts we can't be making up these rules as we go thinking that we know best and That's right. read an article here and there. We need to bring in people who have lived experience, who work with these people every day and hear their thoughts, right? Absolutely. So I think that's a good step and uh, like you said, and then working on the policies. I know here at uh, Women's Crisis Services, we have a diversity and equity task force internally. So we have staff and managers on that and they're going to be reviewing our policies and then next steps starting to think how would that get implemented? Who do we bring in for training? Um, how many trainings do we need? What do they look like? How do we roll them out? Because all that is so important um, and we're not gonna be able to make change without it, right? Absolutely, no, you're definitely, I think that's the, the big piece. You know, people need to make sure they're educated and make sure they're all on the same page. Um, and I just think it's really important like to, to get going on it. We can't mm -hmm. keep you know saying we're going to do this. We need to actually have some action, take action um, and make those those things happen. Yeah, I think so too. And it is for sure challenging when you do have these stereotypes in the media and uh, TV shows we watch and movies and like you mentioned, it's it is difficult because people have unconscious bias and they don't even realize but when you're watching these things and listening to these things and you might not even know you're picking up on it right so it is important that we challenge it and talk about it and point out oh I, that was kind of weird there i don't really agree with that i wonder why they're always portrayed this way right and imagine being a trans person and that's what you see reflected in the mirror or reflected on screen of yourself of your life how internalized that you may internalize that um, transphobia um, or that that sense of of this is not made to seem non not normal uh, you're going to internalize that so you know maybe you know would you seek you know a public service to get away from violence because you've seen on a show that you know people get treated terribly or whatever um, just just very just like like you said there's so many layers so many layers to like yeah. uh, the issues um, but it's true the fear like I could only imagine the fear because it's not just it everyone's watching this and listening to this and this is what's going on so I can only imagine how you someone would internalize that and that's another barrier is the fear going in um, to access this kind of service yeah do you, can you even ask for the help? Mm -hmm. Are you, is it safe to even do that? That's like huge. And I think there is a lot of fear. And if you don't see anybody representing you to see yourself, like you, you kind of be like, you create your own myth of what you think you are. Mm -hmm. And if you've been actually kicked out of the house by your parents or physically abused or, or emotionally abused and made to say you're not worthy or you're, you're less than or you need to leave, um, it's really hard to reach out to people that are strangers for help. Oh, yeah. Where would the trust be, right? right. All the relationships you've had, or, or a lot of them, are not healthy. They could be abusive. Mm -hmm. Yeah, what makes you think you could trust a total stranger when you can't even trust your own family yeah. and your own intimate partners, right? Exactly, yeah. Yeah. Lots of barriers, that's for sure. But, but I think 
you mentioned a lot of good small steps we can start by taking and I think you like you said the more we talk about it um, and get going on it we need to we need to work on this it's 2020 we got to do this um, and there isn't enough research out there you and I were talking before recording this podcast we were looking for articles and stuff and it was hard to find anything it was hard I mean we've got some from the UK we've got some from you know the US very few from Canada Mm-hmm. And like I said, like until we start really collecting data, like even our own Canadian census, it, the short form version doesn't even have a ticky box for if you're trans. So if you're not counted, you don't exist. Mm-hmm. And then there's no services for people that don't exist. There's no money for services that, for people that don't exist, right? So um, that's why it's so important to collect data and to make sure that it's accurate. Oh, I agree. I think that's that's so powerful. If you're not counted, you don't exist. It's couldn't be more true, right? Mm-hmm. You don't see yourself reflected there. So um, I think that I'm really excited that Women Crisis Services have asked me to come and speak, and I am really excited that we're going to hopefully partner together. That your your agency is going to change their policies, and then maybe you'll be the next one to you know go to a waith and say, hey, look, we all need to change our policies so that all women shelters would service trans women or non-binary people. Yeah, I think so too. I think that's the way we got to go. I think we have to because, like you said, people's basic needs are not necessarily even being met right now. People deserve to live safe, happy lives, and they should feel safe in their own home, right? And sadly, not everybody does. Right. So, yeah, thank you so much. And and I think it is important to talk about how we can be good neighbors. You know, this is called the She Is Your Neighbor Project. And... I think it is important to think about how we all can personally be good neighbors to transgender and non-binary people, youth. We need to think about that, um, not just in our organizations, but in our daily lives. You know, what can we do? What can we say? How can we help change things? Right. Right. Yeah. For sure. <laughs> yeah, I think that. Um, yeah, I think it's just really important that they're like, I mean, even this is a small step to raise awareness. Um, and you may not know who your neighbor, if your neighbor is trans or not, you may not know that. You may not have known that had I not told you that, because I don't, I look very male. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, if I had not disclosed that, then you may, you may not have known. So you don't know actually maybe who's coming through your doors. Yeah. So you need to, and it may not be, you know, not every trans person needs to disclose right? They they don't, they, you know, they may come to your door and you may not have any idea. So there just needs to be an openness. uh, I agree. In general. Yeah, I think it, I agree. Creating that awareness, people shouldn't have to disclose. It's their own personal information. They don't need to do that, but we should all be treating our neighbors. You know, we should be treating everybody well. It's just, it's not fair. So we should be realizing, you know, the name of this is she is your neighbor. Um, We picked that name because we're largely talking about women and girls who are serving here. Right. Um, so the idea was, she is your neighbor. Think about it. Um, but you know, I think, I, think, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> we might have to change the policy next I year. I know, right? Yeah. But I think it's important and realize people, these people are your neighbors and we need to just think about that and act like it and yeah. treat everybody well. And that's kind of our slogan with this too, is we all have a role to play when it comes to ending domestic violence or violence against all people, really. Um, so we need to think about what is our role in it and how can we be a good neighbor? That's right, I, I, absolutely. And I think like a, a main part of it is that um, like 
shelters need support and I know a lot of that is financial and I think uh, you know a lot of times shelters you know look for funding through charities or um, you know having um, you know auctions or, or whatever mm -hmm. you do to, to raise your funds I know you get some from United Way and some from the government but it's just really important that like us as a community we all own this it's it's important that us as a community um, own a piece of that everyone deserves to be safe everyone deserves to be free of violence in their lives and if there's a way you can help do that um, whether you know be speaking or advocating or financially I think that we all like own a piece of that I agree and I think I think you're right there's so many different ways that people can help and you can step up and you can be an ally and I think everybody can find what works for them and how you're best able to help and be a good neighbor you know we can all do that and I think it's necessary for sure awesome well thanks so much for coming here today I, it's been awesome talking with you I think we have a lot to think about I'm gonna be thinking about this for the rest of the day now and going over it but I'm just so grateful you're able to come I'm just so glad you asked me to come I'm just so honored to be part of the campaign and um, you know I think I'm this is not the end for us I think we'll continue to work together I know my organization is very excited about this podcast and and, and, the, and the campaign so I think that this is just the beginning of how we can all work together to like you know provide safety for our neighbors so that everyone is safe oh I think so too I'm really glad to hear that thanks Jenna That wraps up this week's show, but the conversation is far from over. We want to hear what you think. Use the hashtag SheIsYourNeighbor on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram and join in the conversation. We all have a role to play in ending domestic violence.